if you just think about us as an organism from when we start in utero and when we get born, we don't have psychology. We've got physiology first. Psychology grows out of um, our physiology. So especially like, you know, with your dogs, you many people know dogs are shaking in a thunderstorm. And what we've always done in Western societies, we say, why are they shaking? Or if my hands are shaking while I'm public speaking, or as a little kid at primary school, like, why am I shaking? It's a sign that I'm stressed or I'm anxious or I'm frightened. Thanks for joining on. I really appreciate you being here. I, th- I think a really good place to start is what is TRE and what is TRE in relation to, to trauma and healing trauma? So originally TRE stood for or stands for Tension and Trauma Release Exercises, but I tend to personally just refer to it as TRE as, a, as its own acronym, a little bit like if you say to people, what does DNA stand for? They don't really know most people, but you sort of know what DNA is. So the reason I say that is because it's not just relevant to stress release and tension release, but also like a reorganizational um, impulse in the body that helps our body to, you know, rearrange tension and movement patterns. So primarily what it's based around is the deliberate activation of spontaneous shaking, trembling, full body movements, any sort of spontaneous movement in the body, because that shaking and trembling is our body's natural stress release and trauma recovery reflex. So when we look at trauma from a movement-based model, which is ultimately what our stress and trauma responses are first and foremost about creating movement or containing movement, then it makes sense that we want to restore the neuromuscular system's innate capacity to move freely both of the body through space but also potentially like spontaneous movements of the heart rate speeding up or the respiratory system or the digestive system being able to move freely again. So TRE is just a really, it's a framework, it's a modern neuroscientific framework of understanding this shaking and tremoring reflex, reframing it as a positive innate recovery resource, which is in every single human and most mammals on the planet, and then providing people with an easy way to access it, self-regulate it, and so that they can then use it on an ongoing and regular basis. That's a really interesting part, right? You look at um, nature, like you mentioned there, you look at animals when they go for a hunt or they're being chased, a deer, for example, when they stop, you see them do that voluntary shake, right? And I think that humans, um, we've, we've become so heady, you know, like you look at psychology and it's like all about the mind. It's like, we're not just <laughs> here above or it's like, what's your mindset or there's my dog. Like, what's your mindset or what's your, your approach around psychology? It's like, no, the body exists as well. We exist in a whole spectrum. If you just think about us as an organism from when we start in utero and when we get born, we don't have psychology. We've got physiology first. Psychology grows out of um, our physiology. So especially like, you know, with your dogs, you many people know dogs are shaking in a thunderstorm. And what we've always done in Western societies, we say, why are they shaking? Or if my hands are shaking while I'm public speaking or as a little kid at primary school, like, why am I shaking? It's a sign that I'm stressed or I'm anxious or I'm frightened. And you see this everywhere. Like you read children's books. I remember reading to my kids, you know, you read The Ugly Duckling and it gets out in the swamp and it's on its own and it will say things like The Ugly Duckling was, you know, shaking or trembling with fear. So we've all just kind of been culturally... Um, you know, misdirected that the shaking and tremoring response is stress or anxiety or fear, or even, for example, a panic attack. But it's none of those things because it's so obvious that the shaking and trembling, if you're standing there and your body's shaking, 
that's not helping your body to fight or to flee, and it's not helping your body to freeze or fold or immobilize. So the shaking and trembling's got nothing to do with, in a way, I mean, yes, it's happening because the body has had an adrenaline surge or a stress response, but it's not part of the stress or trauma response. It's the recovery response and the way the body naturally restores itself back to homeostasis and us and our psychology along with it. You said something really interesting there that really stood out to me, which was psychology comes out of physiology. Was that what you said? Yeah. So when we're babies, we don't have a cognitive mind that grows out of movement. And even if you look across, you know, the animal and the plant kingdom, the nervous system is developed in organisms that move. And it's, you know, that's why we've got such a huge cerebellum at the back and it's all about movement. And so our cognition kind of grows out of the, the ability to move really. And for those aficionados out there who would say, well, what's the difference between this and say somatic experience or what's the difference between this and, you know, shaking medicine where you're, you're mm. standing in one place or you're moving your body around. Is there a difference between these three modalities and what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So let's break it down to this two separate areas. So first of all, we've got volitional conscious movement. So you go and do Pilates, you go to the gym, you go for a run, you do yoga, or you even try and relax your body by controlling your breathing and, um, you know, doing mindfulness meditation. So all of those things are fantastic and we know the effect of them, but the limitation is we are limited by the depth to which we can consciously control our body. Now, what's different with what we loosely term neurogenic tremors or neurogenic movements, um, we use that term in theory, just to create a sense of going, these movements are being generated by the nervous system, even though that's not, it's probably a little bit more, a little bit inaccurate, but anyway, by the organism itself. So they're spontaneous involuntary movements, which are very different to consciously directed volitional movements. And then the beauty of that is that the body is able to create movement to release stress and tension and reorganize itself at levels below our cognitive control. So what it means is rather than being limited by what I can consciously create in my physiology, we've got this direct access to the capacity of the organism to reset itself and and rebalance itself. So another way of thinking about it is just about all the techniques that we use that are focused on the body, we think about them as being bottom-up techniques because they involve the body. But really what they are is they are top-down techniques where we're using our cognition upon the body trying to generate a bottom-up effect. So, you know, you change your breathing, you change your heart rate. So they're top-down with a bottom-up effect. And the difference about the spontaneous neurogenic tremor response is it is a true bottom-up response, which means that how your body moves, where it moves, when it moves, is all entirely generated by the organic wisdom of the body, for want of a better term, than our cognitive mind. Now, when we look at somatic experiencing versus theory, because that's another technique that uses a lot of the spontaneous involuntary movement, the easiest way I think about them is, you know, somatic experiencing is much more of a therapeutic modality where it's, you know, driven and guided largely by the therapist. So, for me, I go, that's a little bit like going to a surgeon. You go get your surgery, great, fantastic. TRE, you can use it in that therapeutic setting, but its real sort of value and gift to the world is that you can use it as a self-care technique. So David Berselli, the TRE founder, you know, the impulse behind developing this technique was empowering huge numbers of people to recover on their own following mass scale disasters or, you know, natural disasters or war zones. Cause you know, his point was he was trained as a psychotherapist was like, 
after a tsunami where you've got 200,000 people have died, we, we can't send in 500 million psychologists to do 10 sessions each with people in that therapeutic model. And also that the therapeutic model itself is very much a um, an, an expression or a manifestation out of a Western therapeutic mindset. So it's not even applicable to many other cultures and people around the world who just do not see the world that way. So the real gift I see TRS a little bit, it's like saying first aid, you know, 90% of the problems, 90% of the time. So it's very much about empowering people, not only on their journey of healing, stress and trauma, but also personal growth and development. Because as we start to change the physiology, then we have the opportunity to move into greater states of connection, growth, curiosity, um, and flow. I love that. And I love the point you made about, you know, not everyone has the same models of the world. You know, you go to a different part, different culture. So I, I spoke to someone um, about two months ago, her name was Georgina Camp, and she was speaking about the, um, she would go to different locations, uh, you know, like uh, third world countries and things like that. And she would uh, analyze like what, what is well-being for them? And when they ask the question, it's like, what, what do you mean well-being? Like what, what they don't understand the question, right? So they would try to go in and find objective data on like what, what gives them meaning. And it relates back to this, this other study around the adaption principle, right? Which is that humans can adapt to most things besides uncertainty, for example. So she was in this, this, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here and use my own language, but she was mm. saying she was in a, in a clan inside of India and they had no financial means. They had no autonomy to do what they, they need to do to live their life. So they would create things around them to give themselves certainty, which is one of the needs that humans have. And when they ask these questions from a Western's point of view, it's like, how's your mental health? It's like, what? It's like, oh, I'm alive. That means I'm happy. I'm not dead. So their standard of living is, is different. Their standard of thinking is different. And I think that what you're talking about there with, with the, the, the bottom-up approach, no one can deny the fact that we're animals, right? And I think we forget this. And I did a YouTube video on this as well recently, which is really cool around how we forget that we're animals, right? So then in our, nat in our natural environment, which we're not in, if you look at it, like look where we're sitting right now and how we're communicating, doesn't mean it's bad, but just, well, it can mean it's bad, but that means that we lose that, that quintessential essence of who we are. Like, and that's, that's, you know, that's the shaking. That's the, that's the voluntary release of emotions. But then we're top down, we're like, no, I'm going to hold that back. And I'm just assuming here, but I imagine over time that builds up as what they call refrigerator harm stress in the background, which then leads to chronic disease and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And probably the biggest one is what we would kind of term body armoring, you know, where we start to have chronic tension patterns in the body. Um, and I like to make the point. So all the listeners, we, you're sitting here, you could be having a wonderful day and you feel fantastic, your conscious mind, as far as what you're aware of in the body. But if we were to send a good you know, massage therapist around with their elbows and they pushed into your glutes or your vertebrae or your upper traps, they're going to go and find all of this unconscious tension and bracing. So because we tend to find stress and trauma in a real cognitive, psycho-emotional level, we don't think, oh, wow, I'm traumatized because my muscles are chronically braced and held. But if you look at trauma and define it in relation to the physiology of the body, then any state that the body's moving into of bracing or holding or immobilizing is effectively a trauma state. Now, I don't want to undermine the significance of people who've been through life and death trauma, um, you know, and the difference from that from just, you know, other sorts of sort of, let's say, little T trauma or, you know, psycho-emotional trauma or social trauma. 
But what's important is we don't look at trauma that way. We define trauma by what the external experience was. So therefore, we all think, oh, look, I'm just a normal person having a good time. I've got a little bit of stiffness in in my body. We don't recognize that we've got all of these unresolved patterns, both stresses from the past, things, you know, experiences from the past that haven't been completed or the body's let go, primarily because we haven't allowed the body's natural shaking discharges. Very similar to if you think about the shaking involved in crying, which is how the body releases grief. Well, you go to most Western funerals, you're not going to see people crying. We just contain it. So that's the containment of grief and, and that. But also, you know, I like what you mentioned about that background refrigerator hum, because we also have stress and tension and anxieties based around perceived future events, which 95% of the, the, the time don't happen. And if I could, Luke, what I'd really like to pick up on, and you can guide me a different way if you need to, is this concept around humans don't like uncertainty. And that's absolutely true. But what I suggest we think about here is most of something like I read a figure, it might be, you know, 93 or 5% of the research around psychology is based on Western, you know, academic psychology students, not around different cultures. So in my personal background experience, I've done a lot of stuff around Native American vision quests. And one of the things that stands out for me in there, and in a lot of a lot of traditional cultures where they had a really well-defined way of growing up the physiological and psycho-emotional maturity of people, you know, I think about some of the some of the prayers, which would always finish with great mystery. And so why I'm saying, you know, you'd be like, you know, whatever this, that, and the other, great mystery. So built in to their culture and the development of maturity is actually this concept of uncertainty is okay. So what I would suggest, and, and I certainly know from my own journey over the last 12, 15 years in personal development, but especially through discovering TRE and learning how to let go and surrender you know, developing the ego's capacity to say, you know what, I don't know. It is a mystery. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I don't need to stress about it. And to be open to the mystery for me is one of the most significant things that this technique can bring us. If we bring that understanding, because all of a sudden into a Western model, we start to have a pathway towards what, what, what I like to call physiological maturity, where our body is calm and grounded enough so that uncertainty starts to lose some of its terror and some of its fear. And it actually becomes the baseline state of curiosity. Like what I'm going to suggest is as a young child, you know, one, two, three years old, there's massive uncertainty. It's just that we don't call it uncertainty because we don't even care. We are present and we are exploring and we are curious. So for me, it's the uncertainty has got a lot more to do with the development of our conscious mind and our ego. And that's significant because when we do TRE or any other spontaneous movement practice like Katsujun Undo, which is translated as regenerative movement from Japan, if you do Seiki Jutsu that the ancient samurai practiced or bioenergetic shaking from Bali or um, the Kalahari Bushman, there's all all these different cultures we all know about this technique is that when we invoke the spontaneous movements of the body, we're letting go of control. And we're letting go of my ego wanting to direct the process. And that is a huge developmental phase and step that most of us are never guided through or facilitated through in the Western world. There's so many places you could take this. It's almost ontological. Like you look at 
the nature of humanity and like we had all the tools that we needed as far as i'm concerned as far as what i've my research has done or shown to me is that in ancient tribes in the, the rite of passage for men for example and how we initiate people into the community and things like that it almost feels like we had it all figured out and then whatever it was you know obviously it's a part of humanity because it didn't just come out of nowhere but we started to become westernized right we kind of become top down and um and i think that's caused a lot of pain and, and suffering for people and i just wonder where it came from and, and why it exists and and why it's here and and I guess why we can't shake it, um, pun intended. Yeah, look, it's a great question. And and I know often there's a tendency for us to look at traditional cultures and go, oh, they had everything perfect. And then Western cultures just gone wrong. The way I look at it is, you know, Indigenous cultures had a whole lot going really, really perfectly well. And yet there's been this sort of different branch of evolution. It's not like Western society has evolved on from Indigenous cultures, but it's just a different branch or a different pathway. And somehow we are evolving as humans in this Western this Western way. Um, and there's things to be integrated into, you know, integrated sort of the bigger picture of humanity. So rather than me looking at it saying, look, this is all wrong, it's a little bit like with trauma. And David Berselli, the TRE founder, one of his greatest you know, teachings and points is that trauma is an evolutionary impulse on the body, uh, sorry, on the, on the planet. So yes, we all hate it. None of us want it, but it's a part of life. And when we're able to embrace it and engage it and let it sort of crack us open and find a deeper place, we find more humility, more humbleness, more, more of our humanity and compassion, then it actually helps to grow and evolve us both as individuals because we have to actually start to integrate the fact of uncertainty and trauma and also to help us grow as, you know, people in a culture uh, as well. And what I, I asked someone the other day, I said, we're talking about wellbeing practices. And I said, what's the best wellbeing practice to prevent death? Like, what do you mean? I said, well, okay, well, when you're about to die, what wellbeing practice can you do to make sure you've got good wellbeing? So my point is that even our focus on wellbeing we get very singular in our focus. And it's not to say that we don't want to be as well as we can, but most of what we're doing is trying to deny the reality that we're a balance between you know, life and death. We're a balance between the growth and the decay. And again, in Western society, we generally just try and ignore death until you can't ignore it any longer rather than integrating you know, our shadow side or the darkness or the, the descent into the dark night of the soul and the journey and the richness that comes out of those experiences that our ego and our conscious mind innately is designed to try and protect us from. So one of the beauties of TRE is that unlike most tools that we use in TRE, TRE is using us. It's like we're the tool, the tremor is using us. So rather than it being a consciously directed process. So again, it opens this doorway to humility and surrender and flow because when we lie on the floor or we stand up or we sit or however we bring the tremors on, we let go and it's about my ego letting go so that ultimately we have the balance between the capacity to control and choose and use my will to create things and achieve success. What we tend to lose in our Western culture is the humility to go, you know what, all the success I've ever created myself is really only also happening because the entire universe outside me that's not me has allowed it. 
but we very rarely focus on that. We think that's up to me. I've created that. I've manifested that. But there's a whole universe out there which is aligning with us and allowing us those processes. So this is, for me, you know, beyond, you know, I've got stress and trauma is this process. I like to say if we're not in a permanent state of perpetual growth, we haven't really got what TRE is offering us. And that's my passion is not just about going, look, I want people who've had trauma to heal and get back to a normal rat race working 24-7 trying to buy a bigger house. What's the point of that and consume more? But it's actually about using this process so we can evolve, you know, over our individual lifetime so that we come into more harmonious, respectful and reverent relationship to ourselves, our body, to other people, and then importantly, the world around us, because we've only got to look out the door and see how the climate is going and the environment to see that one of the main things we're list, we're missing in our Western culture is this relationship with the other. That's beautiful, Richmond. I love that. And I think you're 100% right. And I, I see it in my own life. I see it in the world. I think there's a, there's a crisis in, I don't want to say consciousness because that then would imply the mind, but there's a crisis in this, in, this, uh, it's like we're discombobulated, you know, we've, we've cut ourselves up into pieces and we, we try and box everything away, but we don't realize that we're part of a bigger picture and a bigger scheme. And that bigger picture and that bigger scheme requires us to let go and to let, let things chi flow through us as they say. Yeah. And, and to be in relationship, if, if I could just sort of share a bit of a couple of stories here. So one is that uh, many years ago, I did an advanced diploma in Aboriginal studies with a um, Aboriginal Tramby Aboriginal College in Sydney. So they allowed white fellas or non-Indigenous people to do the course. In fact, it was part of the elders who set it up, said you have to also offer this process to non-Indigenous people. And the whole primary focus of the course, I'll never forget Jack Beetson, one of the elders and teachers, came in on the first session. He said, right, you're all here to learn about us blackfellas, but you can't learn about who we are unless you know who you are. So the whole first phase of the course was about learning about our own identity. Then as we started to expand in trying to understand, you know, Indigenous cultures and all the different Indigenous cultures within Australia. And at the end of our course, because it was, you know, kind of a a dual world course where we were doing lots of stuff on country, you know, not just sort of academic stuff, but we'd, we'd hand things in. We had to hand in our final assignment, which was, I can only kind of describe it as saying, you know, well, what have you learned about us or, you know, about Indigenous culture and what's the key thing? And I remember... I handed in my assignment. It seems funny when I think about it, but to my teacher, we, the group of us, the students, were all sitting around having lunch one day. It was near the end of the course. And I went up, I tapped him on the shoulder, walked around the chair, tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, hey, um, I'm ready to hand in my final assignment. He said, okay, great, let's, let's have it. And I said, it's all about relationship. That was my primary key takeaway about the relationship with the land, with the people, with ourselves, with each other, with spirit, however you want to think about it. So that was a really significant, you know, thing and the respect, just that respect and that reverence. And then the second story I want to share here that that relates to this is one of my dear friends and teachers, a guy called David Derecha, who was a pioneer in breath, breath work and body work and famous for his work around healing circumcision, recently passed away. And one of the things he said to me at one point at a training I was attending of his, I'll never forget it, is he said, all the drugs of addiction are sacred substances that we are not using sacredly. 
So saying they're all substances that have this amazing potency, but we don't consume with reverence and respect and in relationship with them. We just consume them and gobble them up, you know, whether it's tobacco, so whether it's cigarettes, whether it's chocolate from cacao. And the amazing one I think is around is sugar, which, um, I, and I say this regularly to people, I don't even know any story about how sugar's been used as a sacred substance. But research shows that when you get rats addicted to cocaine and sugar, they will jump higher to get to sugar than they will jump to get to cocaine. So, you know, our whole culture is just completely out of relationship with what's the effect of sugar, right? It gives me a bit of high, it gives me a little bit of energy, but we're out of that reverence and, and relationship to what is this actually bringing, what it's showing us, and how is it helping us live better lives in relationship with the sugar, in relationship with other people, in relationship with the land. And I think for me that that lack of reverence and sacredness in my own life and when I look at my own life and that is the big black, you know, empty hole that's led to a whole lot of stress and depression and anxiety and overwhelm. And when I'm gradually moving into much more harmonious, respect, respectful relationships, I naturally seem to be happier and healthier and more curious and more engaged and more secure um, and of more benefit and service to the world rather than being so self-focused. In relation to the foods that are sacred, it's like we, there's a, you know, if you look at the bigger picture, we went very, you know, went specific and global there, but I think you look at the bigger picture, um, the, the problems that we're experiencing in the world, as far as I'm concerned, seem more to be connected to this, to what you're saying, which is that, we consume things that are sacred because we're disconnected from the reality that that's how we feel about it. Our intuition, our internal guiding system that connects us to the world, right? If you go to the Amazon forest and you, you know, I wouldn't want to see ancient tribes there because they would just slaughter you straight away because they don't know who you are. They think you're something separate, but I, in those tribes, like they have this huge community. They've got this connection with the nature. They're living out there in the complete dark, but they understand, you know, what's, what's going on for them. So the point I'm making is that, it feels like a lot of the problems that we're having is a disconnection to who we are and to our bodies. And that's caused or can be resolved by stepping into uh, letting go of the mind and, and stepping into the body. And as, as um, I think it's Bezel van der Dolk or Volk mm. says the body keeps the score. Bezel van der Kolk. Right. Yep. And it's like, yep. yeah, that's the one. Uh, the body keeps the score and it always will. And it's like, no matter how hard you try, you can, you can go see a mindset coach, for example, to make you a multimillionaire and to have the big house and the Porsches and the Ferraris and all these things. But in the day, mm. if you're not happy in your body, if you're stressed out, like I've been all this week, then you know happiness is yeah. secondary. Um, so I, I agree with you, and I hear you on that. Yeah, and if we we look at we, yeah, so we're talking about this sense of embodiment, for want of a better word. Like so, personally, I always like to play with language, and it's not a great word, and it doesn't sound so good. But I'd say, look it really would be helpful if we talked about embodiment rather than embodiment. Why do I say that? So if we look at, there's kind of two main forces about how embodied and connected and how alive and pulsating we are in our organism. One is the external culture. So we grow up in a culture, you know, in Australia, for example, where when you go to school, you're going to spend, you know, 90% of your time thinking, focused on conceptual stuff. You do a little bit of sport, um, you know, then you go into the world. And so we are, enculturated out of our body. You spend all your time on social media. I, I can't imagine that's, there's not a lot of stuff unless you're using apps that are taking you back into your body. So there's an external influence 
of a culture around us which is trying to draw us out of our body. Um, again, there's some wisdom in that, which even if we don't understand, there's some process going on here. But then we also have our internal process of, let's just call it disembodiment. And but most of the time, none of us are choosing this process of trying to disembody. We might be unconsciously by, you know, having drugs or alcohol or food or on social media or watching TV. But when we look at the response of stress and trauma in the body, what's really important to recognize is the process of disconnection and disembodiment is organized by the body itself. It's not a conscious thing. You know, if I'm about to get hit by a car, I don't cognitively think, right, shit, I've got to get out of my body. I'll disconnect from my body. The organism actually creates that disconnection state. And it happens even at low levels of stress, where as soon as we have a fight or flight sort of stress response, the body shunts blood flow and therefore energy and therefore awareness away from our hands and feet. So theoretically that we can punch and kick for our lives without any fear of feeling it. So even at low level stresses, and even if it's because I'm worried about, I don't know, finishing my project by Friday or paying my bills by Monday or whatever it is, we're starting to have this disconnection response happening in the body. And then when we move into trauma states where the body's immobilizing, that process continues. So my point here, Luke, is that on an internal world, in relation to chronic unresolved stress and trauma, the disconnection is not something we are cognitively choosing. So we often use cognitively directed techniques to help reconnect to the body, which is brilliant. And we know the benefits of, you know, mindfulness or the passion of meditation or dance therapy or all of those things, incredibly useful. But what we're doing with TRE or any of these spontaneous tremoring practices or movement practice is we're re-adding and awakening the body's own organic driver and desire to get back into a more efficient, embodied, free-flowing state. And in some ways, it's no different to animals that go into hibernation. So, you know, there's a bear or an Arctic squirrel and there's the food resources are going away and all the body shuts, starts to shut down. The heart, you know, slows down. The breath slows down. The body shuts down. Complete numbness. Until, magically, as the, you know, seasons break, the body starts to shake and tremble before there's any cognition or conscious awareness the body starts to shake itself literally back to life. So um, someone I did an interview with the other day, I'd never, ever thought about this. My big experience of this was in my 30s, I my life was grinding down to a halt because the way I'd always kept my high-functioning anxiety and stress at bay was by doing exercise and sport. But when I got to my 30s, my shoulders were broken down. I couldn't swim because I couldn't lift my arms above my shoulders. I couldn't run because I had chronic Achilles. I couldn't do other stuff because I had chronic back pain and sciatic pain. So I really felt this sense of that my body was, you know, grinding me down. And I couldn't just do my exercise to feel good. And one of my brothers suggested, he said, oh, why don't you start doing some Vipassana meditation? So 10-day silent meditation, primarily just feeling into the body. and on my third one of those, my body started to spontaneously move and wasn't so much shaking and trembling. It was just moving around. It was the most extraordinary thing. I went from being not able to lift my arm above my shoulder because of chronic pain to a couple of days later, I could do a one-handed handstand with my feet on the wall and I could push my body weight up and down as easily as push my hand up and down in the air now. And so everything I'd learned about 
physiotherapy and muscles and strength and all that stuff kind of went out the window. I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the answers. Now it was a pretty wild and woolly time for a long number of months because I didn't have any model for this. Everyone just said, you're going crazy. Your body's moving on its own. I didn't have a network. I didn't have a trauma informed model of understanding this response. I just like, this feels good. I'm going to go with it. And it was only a couple of days ago, someone said, oh, right, that was kind of when you came out of hibernation for the first time. And it is literally when you watch mammals come out of hibernation, they go through this small little shake, starts to wake up the tissues, then everything increases, heart rate goes up, respiratory rate goes up, the body goes into you know really big spontaneous movements. And so this is this process of reawakening in the body. So this is where I say not only is the the shaking and trembling about letting go of the tension and, the, and, and uncoupling the body response from things that have happened in the past. So it goes back to calm and relaxed, but it's also about reawakening the vitality in our organism or the vigor in our nervous system and our capacity to move into the future as well. And that's where I see this, this beautiful balance between the two. And our organism has the impulse to do this. Our living organism wants to be as healthy and efficient as possible. And in a way, even though with TRE, you might do some exercises, all we're really doing is creating time and space for the body to take the lead and move itself however it needs to move in order to bring itself back, not just to homeostasis, but to grow and evolve and to grow and evolve us and our ego along with it. Hey guys, before we dive deeper into this episode, I just wanted to ask a quick question. Are you over worrying about having to create content? Are you over that nagging feeling telling you that you should be posting today or I should have posted yesterday or I should be more consistent with my content? Well, there's no need to worry anymore because my business, Personify, we focus on helping leaders to grow an online presence. And we do this through content creation. We have a multi-step process where we do all of the clip selection, the strategizing, the uploading of the content, the copyright of the content, the video editing, the graphic design, a whole lot across all 10 platforms. So if you're a business owner out there, or if you're a leader, or if you're someone who has something to say, and you don't have to worry about creating all this content, which by the way, can take upwards of 30 hours each week, then let us know. We're here to help. You can reach out to me on the website, www.getpersonified. G-E-T-P-E-R-S-O-N-I-F-I-E-D dot C-O. It's also in the link below. Peace. So do you think psychology is a place in relation to if someone's living in that mode of thinking, would they then approach, you know, let's say for example, I think you said something around, um, uh, let me try and quote you back, that, uh, well, let, let me just ask you, if someone is living in that space, right, and they can't even realize what's going in their body, like you look at people who are severely traumatized, who've been through crazy abuse, they can't feel, like someone touches them, they can't mm. feel it, or they get hurt, they can't mm. feel it because they're in, they've disassociated from their body, right? Or you have someone who suppresses their emotions because as, you know, as a kid, it was too hard to deal with certain emotions and whatnot. If someone's living in that headspace, quote unquote, would the best approach for them to then unravel and then unravel the things in their mind to then have access to their body to then realize the feelings to then work in something like what you're talking about would that be an approach so my answer would always i guess be the question is both. just yeah it's both directions quickly, sorry. i guess, I guess yeah. yeah 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 that's so it's not a matter of going 
one's it's not a matter of going one's better than the other or you should get rid of that one and only do that one it's just that in our current culture and in our current trauma therapy models we're starting to incorporate the body but primarily the way we're doing it is a top down um you know we're focusing on the body top down and we're using our cognition and it has benefits but it's not ultimate benefits so we're just saying look let's add in and reintegrate this bottom-up process this true bottom-up process where we actually let the body determine where and how it moves and shakes a little bit like when you watch for example there's a great video of an arctic squirrel coming back to life out of hibernation and after a period of time its head and its front legs and its shoulders they're all warm and they're back to normal but its hips are still a bit frozen because it sort of thaws the body out in in process so in a way once we start activating this tremor mechanism the body does the same thing. Every time we tremor, it just starts to thaw out the next piece of the body. So I might think, gee, I want it to shake and tremble in my shoulders, but when I lie down, my left foot needs to shake and tremble because there's something happening there that it needs to reintegrate first. So this is where there's a lot of growth in terms of humility and learning to surrender the ego, not to get rid of the ego, but to be able to have a healthy, mature ego that can allow things and also... Again, this is what I love, not just about focusing it as a trauma release process, is when we talk about flow states, Luke, so the thing about flow state, the paradox about a flow state is you can't think your way into it. You have to fall into a flow state in the same way that you can't think yourself to sleep. It's a process of non-thinking or the surrender or the letting go of thinking. So you know, the best ways to stimulate flow states is a you know, huge gravitational forces will bring them on often life and death situations where your nervous system have to switch on will often do them. But as a safe, sensible, easy way to entrain and train flow states and learning how to surrender, I don't think there's anything on the planet that helps us get into these micro flow states where you're learning how to just let go and let the body take over. That's really the definition of flow. Can, can you hear noise in the background or is it clear? Nah, hard, hardly at all. But, uh, you know, there's that famous quote, it's one thing to meditate in the ashram. You've got to be able to meditate in the marketplace. And if you can't, then really what's the point of your practice? So let's don't worry about a bit of background noise. Everyone who's listening is in background noise. Let's just kick on. Yeah, it's like that. What does Alan Watts say? He says, don't become a stone Buddha where you just become a meditator and you're great at meditating yep. when you're meditating, but then you come in the world, you're like, you're not in the... On the Tibetan mountain, you know, you, you, you kind of lose yourself when you're in reality. So I think it's important to have that as well. Yeah. And look, and that was, you know, funny story for me was that was when I was doing my Vipassana, the third one, and my body started to move very slowly. So I was listening to, you know, um, recordings by Goenkaji, the teacher. And then we also had our local teacher there teaching. And, you know, they kept going, right, sit still, meditate, don't move. But then at the same time, I'm here Buddha's teachings or go through Goenkaji saying, just observe, just observe, just observe. I'm going, well, hang on. My body has started to rock forwards and move on its own. I'm not doing that. Am I going to go with the teacher, which is saying, sit still, sit still. And I was think, I remember thinking this thought. I thought, I'm going with Buddha. I'm just going to go and observe this. So in the observation, then the movement started to happen. And to be clear, there's real value in not getting carried away and and i look back now and go right i got so excited about how good it felt and so i'm falling into the kind of craving away from the you know trying to get away from the pain but that sense of the ability to be able to sit still but also to be able to move and you know for me the example of the ancient samurai warriors so when we think about 
you know, samurai warriors, they're famous for having superhuman strength and being able to jump onto buildings and be supple like a cat, but then be like Zen masters the next moment. And so one of their secret practices was something called Seiki Jutsu, roughly translated as life force yoga, where they would meditate to the point where the conscious mind would relax enough that the body would start to spontaneously move. And that was one of the key secret practices that gave them these seemingly superhuman fluidity in their body and their mind. And so in TRE, we're, we're doing similar sort of thing, but we're just translating it through a, a Western neuroscientific viewpoint. And David Berselli, the TRE founder, you know, one of his great gifts, Luke, is that because he traveled around the world in so many different cultures, rather than seeing this shaking phenomenon in one perspective, like this is, you know, it's a trauma release or it's the entering of the, the Kalahari Bushman would say that the nom, I can't do their, you know, their clicky sounds, but it's like, you know, or the Christians would say, this is the Holy Spirit moving me. Or someone else would say, this is a devil releasing me. Or someone else would say, whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's Kundalini, it's Chi, it's all those different interpretations. None of them are wrong, by the way. But his great gift was to see that this is a human organism response. And then we each make our own interpretations. So TRE has become very Western neuroscientific in its model. And the only reason that's relevant is because that's the language and the religion of the day. You know, if we go into a room of Christians and they say, this is the Holy Spirit moving my body, I'll have these two questions. Are you okay? And is it working for you? In that case, keep letting the Holy Spirit move your body. If I walk into a workshop in Melbourne with a whole lot of trauma therapists, I'll say, oh, this is a polyvagal informed thing where the body's down regulating the autonomic nervous system. Let it happen. Are you okay? And is it working for you? And so, as I say, David Berselli's gift was to see this innate response in the body that's there regardless of our culture or our belief system or our interpretation. So, I often, I often sort of like to make this point in my workshops after explaining all the neuroscience and telling the stories of the polyvagal theory and the fascial systems. Generally, that we get people to the point where I say, now, look, all of that is just a story because in 500 years or 5,000 years, people will look back at the stories we're telling about the nervous system and how trauma works and they'll be laughing their heads off at the same way we look back at you know, people in the middle ages going, oh, we just got to chop your hand off to make you feel better, whatever it is, I'm making up a stupid thing. But point is, we sit here in our evidence-based culture saying, we know, I think we can explain everything, but you've only got to have a four or five-year-old child. You say, oh, you know, trauma releases because the polyvagal system does this, this, this. And the child's going to say, well, why does the polyvagal system do that? You say, well, because there's these nano micro things that the amygdala does this. And they'll say, well, why does the amygdala do that? And in 5,000 years, we're still going to be having this, you know, we're going to have new interpretations and, and new new models. So what I love about it, the more I do this, because I used to love all the neuroscience, being a physio and a left brain sort of person, the more I do it, the less I could care because ultimately the body doesn't give two hoots how you explain it or how you interpret it. It just needs an opportunity to be allowed and then we let the wisdom of the body to lead the process it goes back to the body keeping the score right the body will always keep the score doesn't matter if you decide that you want to do xyz your body will always rule i think and um just an observation what you said there a, a more um not modern but a more modernly phrased way of doing it might be uh in the spiritual communities they do lots of breath work followed by ecstatic dance you know, where you're, you're moving your body, you're free flowing, 
and you just like, and eventually, right, you're in your head when that first happens. Well, I'm in my head when that first happens. So I'm a very, as you say, heady person, which you can probably tell. Yeah. And when you start dancing, when you start, like, next thing you know, like you're 50 minutes, oh, people are watching me, what's going on? You just keep doing that. You keep pushing to that mental resistance. After about, for me, when I first started doing it, so back in 2019, I was chronically um, drinking every single weekend, really bad social anxiety, which I'm sure you mm. have some really unique I relate. Uh, yep, yep. ways of looking I relate. at it. Really bad, really bad social anxiety. So I drink every single weekend. And, you know, as, as the, you know, as it goes with alcohol, you know, you start drinking a little bit, then more and more and more, and it becomes a part of your life. And then, you know, you go out and socialize. It's like, I can't socialize without this thing in my hand. Anyways, I, I end up quitting. And I haven't drink, drunk since, but a, a good way for me to, to change how I was, uh, my relationship with alcohol was to do this ecstatic dance. So I went to this event mm. in uh, Brookvale in Sydney. And I went there and, um, you know, I'd heard of it for a while and I'd just been so resistant to, res- resistant to going because uh, it's scary, sober, sober people. It was just, it was yeah. weird to me. And uh, I went there, I went on the dance floor. I remember being on there. I was just like, I was kind of like, oh, I'm trying to dance. The next thing was, now I'm trying to dance to show the people that I can dance. The yeah. next phase was, <laughs> I'm just dancing. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm just fucking dancing. I'm just like, I was just flowing my body and next, and then an hour later, I was still going. And I just, all the social anxiety went away. Like this whole relief through my body went away. And I felt people, I, I, for, the, for, you know, for one of the first times in my life, I'd, I'd, a few of those Satori experiences in my life before that, but for the, one of the first times in a movement sense, I was like, wow, like I feel everything. And the next day, it's so funny. Uh, the next day I went, um, I had about two or three hours sleep, so really late night, dancing all night. And I walked through the mall and um, I'm sure you've had experiences like this before, like where you're just one, like you're one with everything. Mm-hmm. I was walking through the mall and I'm just giggling to myself. It's like the uh, the laughter of, of of everything, right? And I'm like walking yep. two inches above the ground. It felt like it. Yep. So I'm walking through and then I go into the cinema and I'm watching uh, the Avenger movie at the time. This is back in, <laughs> I think it was the second Avenger movie. And I'm, I'm sitting there, right? <laughs> this is the funniest thing. I'm sitting there. And I'm watching this movie by myself. Like at this point, I hadn't touched my, I was just like, just oh, in bliss. Sitting there by yeah. myself watching this movie. And there's like a bunch of these kids, hooligans in the front, like throwing stuff around. Yeah. And I just like tilted my head like that. I'm like, ah, oh, youth, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I look back up the screen and then like that, they're, they're all they're all teaming up to to beat Thanos. And I'm like, ah, oh, unity, so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Everything was yeah. just beautiful. And that lasted for about a week after that. So yeah. Yeah. So look, it's it's really fascinating. I just want to pick up the the key thing there is there's a point when the body takes over. Um, and so David Bursella, I remember him, you know, talking clearly about this. He said in a lot of cultures, we use what he describes as an ego loosening device. So you have your ayahuasca, you have alcohol, you have MDMA, whatever it is, and that part of ourselves that's inhibiting our body disappears, and then people can go into you know, these states where your body starts to move. So like trance dancing or cultures that use drumming. So there's this critical point where people, where the body starts to take over. The same sort of thing with laughing yoga or crying yoga, where you start doing it volitionally, but it's the point at which it takes over where there's the real magic. And, you know, that leads into the the ancient Japanese art of Wu Wei or the art of non-doing or all those books like Zen and the Art of Archery. They're all about you train this technique. You train this technique until they say, you know, and then all of a sudden the body does it on does it on its own, and that's this real magic moment. And for me in my life, Luke, 
that was a major turning point because as a physio, I'd always been trained that my job was to help fix people based on my knowledge and my skills and what I was doing. And that meant all the problems I had in my life, it was up to me to fix them. I had to do the right thing and make it happen. And when I lay on the floor and my body started to move and awaken and and change in ways that I couldn't do, it was so liberating because I had this momentary sense of, hang on, it's not all up to me. Actually, if I surrender and let go, my body can start to help grow and evolve me. And then the next big liberation for me was with the trauma-informed model about how our body responds to things and triggers and goes into defense habitually based on the past, was starting to get a model for saying, right, when I'm triggered and my body goes in a defensive response, that's because I've got some unresolved habitual pattern in my, inside myself. So let's look inside me and let that move me and let that open me up so that surrendering to life and the, what I sometimes called, you know, being pruning by the secateurs of life. It's like those things that are hard and difficult start to help grow us um, and evolve it. But I'd love to share, I, I, I relate to your dancing story, if I could just tell tell my one. So I was the same, right? Please. You know, I, even sitting here now, I can still picture being at 21sts and, you know, primarily girls, like not necessarily girlfriends, but just friends, you know, dragging my arm to try and pull me to the dance floor. And I'm gripping as hard as I possibly can, almost ripping my, because I'm not going to get up and dance because I'm not drunk enough yet. I'm still inhibited. So many years ago, I was in, um, I was in New Zealand and I met two people who had started the No Lights, No Lycra um, dance movement in New Zealand. So basically they get rooms, they, they black them out completely. So there's absolutely no one can see you. So they said, why don't you come along and, you know, so dance. As soon as they say dance, I can feel my diaphragm pull up. My chest is already feeling tense. And they're like, but no one can see you. It's completely dark. And so I start getting really excited. I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be amazing because I'm going to feel so free. So we go into the hall, you know, it's completely pitch black can't see a thing at all, nothing, can't see the people next to you. They turn the music on, I start dancing, and after about, I don't know, whether it's 30 seconds or two minutes, and I'm thinking, all right, I can dance, I'm going to dance, no one can see me, and then all of a sudden my body just got stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, and then I was frozen standing still in the dark for like the next 40 minutes because even though no one could see me now, my body had such deep inhibition patterns. Like I just remember standing there going, okay, intellectually, this doesn't make sense. No one can see me. There's no, there's no current threat, but simply being in that environment, my body was responding as if there was those, you know, from the past threats. So for me, I had that for, you know, it was like 40 minutes of just standing still and I literally couldn't move. Like there was just no, if I had, you know, if there was a fire alarm, I could have moved my arms, but there was no impulse, nothing inside me that wanted to move. I was just absolutely rigid until probably about, I don't know, 40 minutes or 45 minutes later, something sort of just, I started to slowly feel like I could, a bit like, again, a bit like a, a, an animal coming out of hibernation. I could just start to sort of rock or tap one foot just very gently. And then gradually over a bit of time, my body started to, to come out. So look, totally relate to that. Um, you know, that that sense of dancing and the the inability to just have that free-flowing expression regardless of what other people might think or say. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that we well, can do that, right? Like we we have 
this connection to be able to change it. Like the the, the mm. thing that keeps coming up is like we we just get got to get our own way. Like we just keep trying to control the body and the life with this this mind. And it's like the mind is a great mm-hmm. tool, but like with any tool, if you try to hammer, I don't know, if you try to hammer a desk into existence, it's not going to work. You need different tools for yep. that. You need different different yep. things to use. So. Yeah, this you know the saying, and I first heard this in relation to social media or you know technology. In person, say technology is a wonderful servant and a terrible master, and it's the no, it's no different with the mind. It's perfect servant and a terrible master. And so, in a lot of spiritual, you know, sort of cultures and traditions, which I just think is not that the, the actual traditional culture is necessarily wrong. Just our interpretation of it's probably not as deep as it could be. There's often a sense of trying to transcend the body. You know, I don't exist. I'm not here. And rather than, um, I think the term I heard wasn't my term, was encend the body, E-N-send, which is to go into the body. Um, and that's one of the things, again, with traditional cultures, so much about grounding, you know, the feet, the earth, whereas like in my, you know, Western and background, you know, sort of more Christian cultures, it's like God is up there. It's not down here. It's up in the sky. God's out there somewhere, not down here in this body, um, on this earth, in that harmonious relationship. And, you know, we can't, you're talking about that sense of being able to feel everybody in the cinema and all that sort of thing. Is We can't feel other people if we can't feel our own body. That's the kind of missing, that's the missing link. So we can't have empathy if we can't feel what other people are feeling in our own organism. And, you know, Peter Levine, Somatic Experiencing, developer he's got a beautiful saying saying you know this is part of why if we're numb and deadened in our own physiology that's why we need to have so much gross you know huge scale stimulation in order to feel alive you've either got to be in a life or death situation or working in a you know you feel alive because there's bushfires and you're in that you feel great or we need so much external stimulation whether it's the tv's got to be louder the cinema's got to be bigger because we get that numbing effect and we need more and more stimulation to go, wow, I'm alive. And again, same thing with the substances. We need more of the substances, more of the alcohol, more of the whatever to get the stimulation rather than looking within and going, hang on, this life force and this energy is innate inside me if I can slow down at times, speed up at other times. But if I can just allow that to flow through me, if I can create space to let my organism lead the process, or in TRE we would we would use the term follow the body. So bringing this all full circle, if you know, I'm going to link the resources that you sent me and that I watched mm. um, a few weeks ago um, on how to do this. But coming full circle, let's say there's someone listening right now who has tension headaches, has been told to take Panadol to fix those tension headaches. They've uh, you know got symptoms of depression or anxiety and maybe numbness in their legs. I'm I'm using both body and mind here to give a clear yep. picture. Yep. And they're, they're seeing a psychologist, they're taking the Panadol for the tension headaches, they're doing the physiotherapy, massaging the neck, for example. It just keeps coming back. They feel that tension, they feel that stress, they feel that pain in their body unconsciously. Um, how can they begin, besides obviously the resources and working with yourself and, and doing what you do, how can they begin right now? And feel free to, to use me as a guinea pig if you want to. Hmm. So, look, the, you know, the first thing I would say is about people trusting their intuition, which is another a way of saying trust the feedback that's coming to your mind from your physiological body. So, again, that can be difficult, but there's lots of great things. You know, breath work, I think, is one of the most significant 
tools that we can use, like just incredible mindset training, diet, social engagement, movement, exercise, all those sorts of things. So there's no one one sort of significant modality. I just encourage you to work with people to work with movement and whatever movement form doesn't have to be exercise. It could be stretching. It could just be dancing. It could be mowing the lawns. So movement being critical and to get started in terms of wanting to access this spontaneous, you know, recovery or resilience or reawakening reflex, then, um, during COVID, I created a, an online course. It's currently free online course um, at trecourse.com. So that's three guided sessions so that people can go in there, get a little bit of the information, work out how to whether it's appropriate for them to learn on their own. So there's a screening tool there. So if you're someone who's going, I've got you know major medical history, like I've had a heart attack three weeks ago, or I've got major mental his- mental health history, like I have you know um, schizophrenia and hearvoids or have had extreme trauma that's unresolved and still really active, then generally we would say, look, go and learn with a TRE provider who can guide you and make sure you feel okay so you learn to regulate the process. But, you know, the vast majority of people, 80, 90% of people can probably, if you like online learning, can go and learn the technique and get started that way of just learning how to connect with the tremors. It only takes like a minute or two. Originally in TRE, there's a whole lot of exercises you need to do and you can still do them and they have real value add by getting you into the body. But you can connect with the tremors within like one or two minutes, simply lying on the floor, using a few muscle movements and getting started that way. And then the course has, you know, ongoing use instructions and then another guided session. So, um, it's, a, it's an amazing resource and please, you know, if, you, so if you're thinking about it, how you want to get started is check that course out at trecourse.com and please share it with your family and your friends and your colleagues and your clients um, as widely as possible. And in the course, if there are people who need to learn with a provider, they can either go to, in Australia, there's treaustralia.com, but the global website is traumaprevention.com and there's TRE providers in, I think, something like 80 countries around the world. But you can also learn it through online sessions. It works really well on Zoom because you just lie down, set your camera up, and people talk you through the process and teach you how to regulate it. And what I'm most passionate about, um, you know, Luke, and this is what really drew me to Dr. David Berselli when he when when he first came out to Australia and I brought him out, was this sense about empowering people. So rather than saying, hey, I've got this great technique, come and see me, come and pay your money, come to this, my job is like, I just trying to teach you that it's in there, make sense of it, use it, make sure it's working for you. And then if it's working for you, you know, just like brush your teeth, shake your body. It just becomes a lifelong practice. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. Like any neurobiological skill, the more your body tremors, the more it organizes itself. The patterns just keep unwinding over time. It gets easy to drop into the tremors. And you will be beginning this journey of, like I say, this journey of maturity and wisdom, both in your physiology and in your psychology, so that you can grow into a you know wise, mature, open-hearted, grounded, empathic, vigorous, and alive human being and don't we need more of those on the planet in our western culture at the moment that's beautiful i love that and guys please check out that resource i went into that video and i watched the the series of videos there and i loved it so um and a side note like after this call i'm going to do that i'm gonna go watch it again and i'm gonna do some movement as well to get my body 
back into to shape. So I, I thank you so much for coming on the, uh, here and having a chat. And yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks, Luke. I really appreciate the um, opportunity to be able to share and um, yeah, just to meet you. You've got really great body awareness and a lot of life and, and it, it certainly makes sense from some of those experiences that you've had and own awakening in your own body that you talked about. So thanks for having me. Thank you for watching this episode of the Getting Mental podcast. If you like this episode, then you'll love this one here and this one here. Check them out. 